Have you ever wondered if you are praying effectively? Have you wondered if God actually hears your prayers and does anything about them? Have you wondered what you can ask and expect of your relationship with God through prayer? Today, we're going to take a look at what the honest prayer of David found in Psalm 40 can teach us about our own honest prayers. Welcome to How to Study the Bible. My name is Nicole Eunice, and I am so glad to be on this journey with you as we open up a piece of scripture. We look at it together using the Alive framework, which is just four basic questions that we're asking of the text, and we take away what God has for us each and every day. And today we're going to be looking in this series called Love Psalms. What does it mean to really pray honestly to God? So as I always do, I'm going to start by reading the psalm for you. This one is a bit longer, so we're actually going to take a little bit of a different approach as we spend the next 15 minutes looking at this psalm. So I'm going to read through it, but just know that in a moment, I'm going to break it into some different pieces that we can take a closer look. So Psalm 40, here we go. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha, aha, Be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. I love this psalm, and I've read it over and over again, but even as I hear it aloud, I'm reminded again of how incredible it is that we hear in this, like, when we think about what the psalm says, we hear really a very confident um, sort of declaration of who God is, a very confident declaration 
of what God has done for David. But in reality, in verse 12, we understand the situation and the circumstances that David is, is in. Verse 12 says, for troubles without number surround me, my sins have overtaken me, I cannot see. It almost is surprising because the level of confidence that that David is pouring out for the first 11 verses do not at all betray the fact that he's actually in a really hard place. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we've got to turn back to that when we get to question four, what does this mean for me? But before we do that, I just want to back up and talk a little bit about what we're seeing here. And and what do you do when you've got a big chunk of scripture that you're looking at like this? When we're looking at 19 verses at a time, we can't possibly dig into every nuance, although there are so many treasures to discover. So sometimes when I'm reading a big piece of scripture like this, what I'll do instead is actually try to leave myself like a little outline. If I was just going to say, like, what's the trajectory of this passage? Like, what are the main things that are going on? And so this would be my big outline for this verse or this uh, chapter. I would say the first five verses is just praise. uh, David's just remembering who God has been for him. And then the next few verses from 6 to 10 are really who David wants to be. Like, this is when he's kind of declaring all these things to be true. When he says, sacrificing an offering you do not desire, I said, here I am. I said, I proclaim your saving acts. I don't seal my lips. I don't hide my righteousness. He's kind of claiming all these things that he wants to be. And then in 11 and 12, we get into his petition, like his ask of God. He's asking for God's mercy. And then in 14 through 17, he's making a choice, right? He's saying, hey, this is what I'm going to believe to be true. May all who stand against me um, be turned away. He's got this sort of confident um, sort of declaration that he's making about what he wants from God. And in verse 17, he acknowledges the truth of his own condition, And he asks God to save him. He says in verse 17, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. We get this sort of sense where where David's going. And you might outline this psalm a different way. But if you're in your quiet time and you're trying to think about, like, how do I understand what's happening here? One of the ways to do so is to kind of put those, those big chapters into this one chapter. What is really happening here and what stands out to you? What do you pay attention to about what David is doing in the psalm? If you look at the verbs, you're going to see that David is waiting on God. David is crying out to God. It actually says that he's crying. It says that David is praising God. He says, you've put a new song in my mouth. Uh, David is declaring the truth of what he knows to be true of himself and his heart and what he knows to be true of God. We know that David is speaking of God's love. He's speaking of it publicly in his life. And we know that David's asking. He's asking God to do something. So before we get ahead of ourselves about what this means for us, we can slow down and say, okay, we're reading an honest prayer. And in this honest prayer, there's confidence about who God is. There's remembering uh, what God has done. There's calling on God. There's asking God for specific things. And we can begin to formulate our own understanding of what it means to be in a loving relationship with God, where we have the confidence and the clarity to ask and to show up 
with God a certain way. And I think that David kind of gives us that formula of what that certain way can look like. And it's not it's not a formula in the sense of it's got to be this way or no other way. So maybe it's a little bit of a picture or a rhythm or a framework that we can sort of cling to and ask ourselves, do I show up for God that way? Like, can I imagine showing up for God in prayer that way? The second question that we ask in the Alive Method is, what's the backstory? Is there anything that we want to know about this psalm before we get started? And we do that by reading our study notes and checking out what's been left here for us. And one of them that is so obvious, but we like we often skip over it in the psalms, is that it says that this Psalm 40 is for the choir director. So we understand that this psalm was actually meant to be sung, and it was meant to be sung in a group. But what's interesting about this psalm is that it feels like a very personal prayer. Yet this personal prayer we know was applied publicly. What an interesting thing to know that even though it has personal tones, it's also meant to be used for a group. Another little note from the backstory is that we've got a verse within this psalm that actually calls forward, and we see it again in Hebrews 10. One of the ways that we know that is by looking at our cross-references, which will tell us where else this, this content, these words, or even this full verse might show up in Scripture. And the place that that shows up for us is in Hebrews 10, which is fascinating because it allows us to sort of reframe what this psalm might be about beyond what it meant in the moment that it was written. And it actually says in Hebrews 10, verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So one of the things that we want to know wherever we're reading in Scripture is that the big story of Scripture always points back to Jesus. It always points back to Jesus and his work. Jesus Christ is the central figure of our faith. His life, his death, his resurrection is what we believe. And we're able to interpret the rest of Scripture through that reality. But I just love when this happens, when a psalm that was written by David meant to be sung in the Old Testament that David wrote probably thinking it was just about himself is actually repurposed for use by Jesus Christ, that even in the words it was inspired to mean more than what it even meant in the time that it was written. And surely David didn't fully understand what all that would mean. But if you've ever just, you've come across a piece of art, or even this is like sort of a simple analogy, but if you think about certain songs that never seem to get old, like they're timeless, you hear the song, it was written 30 years ago, maybe it was a Beatles song, or it was a, I don't know, Michael Jackson's song, some song where you hear it and you think, this could have been written today. And it would be just as powerful today as when it was written 30 years ago. That's fascinating. Sometimes there is art or illumination that I think is just a a pale picture of the truth of the inspiration of God's word, that God's word in the moment that was it was written can be inspired, all of it's inspired, but that it can mean so much more than even what the original writer might have known it was intended to mean. 
And when we look at the backstory and we understand, wow, this psalm isn't just about this moment. It's not just about a personal prayer, but it's also pointing to our Savior, Jesus Christ, pointing ahead to the book of Hebrews where we hear these same words repeated. This is such a powerful moment of like, oh, yes, this is a big learning that we want to pick up. Another thing we might want to look at that we we kind of get this cross-reference is right at the end in verse 17, when David sort of ends this psalm by saying, I am poor and needy. And that reminds me of the Beatitudes when Jesus in Matthew 5, 6 and 7 is giving his sermon on the mount and he opens the sermon saying, blessed are the poor. Now, obviously, this has to be about more than the money in your bank account because David was not just poor in finances. He was poor in spirit. In this in this psalm, he's clearly poor in spirit. He's not poor in provision. And when we hear him talk about this idea of being poor in spirit, poor and needy can mean more than our financial provision. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's this idea that we have come to the end of ourself that we're able to acknowledge our deep need for a love and a power that is far beyond our own strength. And that when Jesus says, blessed are you, when you are poor in spirit, here we see this beautiful connection to these words from the psalm that are then repeated by our Lord Jesus Christ and connected to our own experience of what it means to actually come to the end of ourselves and to petition God to meet us with his mercy. I have so many more things I could say about the backstory, but we're going to stop there because this is a short podcast. So the third question is, what does it mean? What are the principles contained within this psalm? I mean, the first and easiest one to grasp is we do have a framework for what it looks like to come to God in an honest prayer. And I think particularly one thing that might be missing from our prayer life is what these first 11 verses sort of represent, which is remembering who God is and what he's done and calling on the promises of God with confidence, even when we are in a place of trouble. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in a place of trouble, my instinctual response is not to praise God for what he's already done. I want to lay out my troubles to him and I want to rehearse my worries and I want to rehash my frustrations But my framework is not, let me start from a place of remembering what God has already done and then calling on the promises of God. But that is the framework that we see here. I think one of the principles that we might be able to write down that we can grab from Psalm 40 is that to praise is to remember. To praise God is to remember, to actually call back. Remember how the psalm opens when David is saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up. David is saying, I may be in trouble now, but I've been in trouble before. And God met me in that trouble. God lifted me from that trouble. He's like rehearsing trust in his mind as the opening to his prayer is to rehearse the truth of who God is. So that's one principle that I believe we can pull from this. The second is this, and this is kind of a theory that we can work with. Like, is this true? Do we see this backed up in other places in Scripture? And here's a working theory that I have from Psalm 40, that the attitude of the heart is more important than any other offering. 
So we see when it when there's this David saying like burnt offerings you do not require, sacrifices you do not require, that's repeated again in Hebrews. And I began to look around a little bit and do some cross-referencing. I love to use BibleStudyTools.com and I'll just sort of type in some words and look for some other places. I had a memory of a scripture that I remember Jesus saying. It was actually from Matthew 15. And it says in 15.8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that phrase, their hearts are far from me, is actually repeated back in the prophet Isaiah, back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 29.13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. So I think a principle that we could apply, a working principle that we see in other places in Scripture that Jesus himself repeats, is that the attitude of our heart is more important than any other offering that we could bring God. So what does this mean for me? I think we have a confidence in prayer in the framework that is provided in Psalm 40, that we remember who God is, that we praise God for who he is that we recall promises and things that we know to be true about God, and then we ask. Then we repeat and we're honest about where we really are, and we ask God with humility to show up in our life. What a powerful thing to take with us is even right now, as you're listening to this podcast, as you're thinking about your worries, about your frustrations, about the places that you feel stuck or, or limited, that God's given us a framework, and that framework starts with like majority praising and remembering. I think that one of the ways that we begin to really trust God is by praising and remembering even when we're in trouble, that there's a trust that we are cultivating with God, that he is at work, that he has not forgotten us, that he is close. When we choose to praise and remember who he is, when we choose to call on his promises first, it's not that we can't show up honestly, because David clearly shows up honestly in this verse, in this chapter. But what we do know is that we can show up honestly, and we can choose to praise God. We can show up with our hurt And we can choose to praise God. We can show up just like hitting the wall and asking God to show us his mercy, but we don't have to keep our heads hung down in shame. We can claim the promises of God and who he is. And what a powerful framework for the way that we pray. So I ask you today, which of these aspects of prayer do you want to commit to today? Maybe you practice it all day. Do you want to practice remembering what God has already done for you in very specific ways? Do you want to practice praising God for who he is? Do you want to practice recalling the promises that you know to be true about God? Or do you want to practice asking with humility for the thing that you actually need, the way that you need God to show you mercy and show up in your life? Because all of those aspects are open to you today as you ask that question. What does this mean for me? Thanks for coming as we've explored Psalm 40 together. We're going to continue our journey through love psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 103 next week. I'm so excited about it. Can't wait to see you guys then. Thanks for listening to How to Study the Bible with Nicole Eunice, a production of LifeAudio.com and the Salem Web Network. 
This episode was produced by Kelly Gibbons and our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey, and edited by Stephen Sanders. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. It really does help people find us. To learn more about Nicole, you can check out her website at NicoleEunice.com. Her book on how to study the Bible is called Help, My Bible is Alive. And you can find a link to that plus a link to Nicole's site in today's show notes. The content we feed our minds will eventually show up in our lives. If we feed our minds the lies and confusion of this world, our lives will begin to reflect worldliness. But if we feed our minds the truth of the gospel, our lives will start to reflect the heart and character of Jesus. I'm John Stonge, and each week I host the Dwell on These Things podcast, where we take a deep look at the Word of God and learn what it means to apply it to our lives. We don't skip difficult passages, and we don't gloss over the truth. If you're looking for a show that will put your mind in a better place and help you understand God's Word with more clarity, you can listen to the Dwell on These Things podcast at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.